Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God hates to see his people live in slavery. What does he want for them? He wants them to live in joyful freedom. Of course, we need to be careful here. What does it mean for us to live as free people? Many people define freedom as freedom from rules or the freedom to pursue whatever desire you want. However, that's not how the Bible describes true freedom. Just think of what our Lord Jesus says in our reading from John 8. There he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this is one thing that Israel in the time of the judges had not understood. Instead, they had fallen into the deadly problem described in Romans 1. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so they served and worshipped created things rather than the Creator. And so they were in slavery. This is what we see them do in our text from Judges 6. Here they are, serving Baal again, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, serving false gods. However, the Lord would not leave them there. He hates His people to, li- uh, living, to see them living in slavery, and so He was bound and determined to set them free. And that's also why I proclaim to you God's Word this morning under the following theme and points. The Lord raises up a new judge to bring about a new exodus. We look at three points. First of all, humanity's greatest problem. That's our first point. And secondly, we'll look at the Lord's saving grace. And thirdly, uh, we'll look at how salvation begins at home. <clears throat> now, our text begins with that repeated refrain in the book of Judges, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. A new generation arose, and they sank back into sinful ways. This, of course, shows again the sad reality of our human nature. Our sinful nature. By nature, the human heart, it's inclined towards evil. The human heart runs downhill towards sin, picking up steam as it goes. And that's why we get this constant cycle of sin and apostasy in the book of Judges. Now, with this opening refrain, we probably know what's coming next. The sin of the people leads to this response from the Lord. The Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. This was a new kind of pain. The Midianites overpowered the Israelites. They entered the land together with the Amalekites and the peoples of the east. And they started from the east and they advanced like savage locusts, destroying as they went. They ravaged the land. They annihilated the crops. They stole all the livestock. 
was so bad that many Israelites, they took shelter in the mountains. They just had to get away from the brutality of the Midianites. And so our text says Israel was greatly weakened or or brought low through this. Now Israel then did the only sensible thing. They, They cried out to the Lord, the only one who could rescue them. Well, this was, this was good, of course, but the Lord did not immediately give them the relief that they craved. <clears throat> Something else needed to be done first. Instead of giving them another judge, God first sent them a prophet. Israel had to learn the reason why this was happening. One of the purposes of the Word of God is to, to wake us up to our sin. That's also one of the purposes of the law of God, to reveal to us our sin, because so often we can be blind to it, as Israel was. Israel needed this wake-up call. We need to hear that too, as pain, painful as it may seem sometimes. But Israel needed to be woken up to their sin They seem oblivious to the evil they were doing. And so this prophet, he comes to the people of Israel, and he brings the Lord's case against them. And he first describes Yahweh's faithfulness and his saving works. I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I saved you from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. What more could the Lord have done? He was so good and so gracious to Israel. He saved them, and then he gave them his commandments, but his commandments to them, they were not burdensome. He said to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God's of the Amorites, that's one of the main things God required of his people. Don't serve the idols, serve me. What did, what did Israel do in response? They did the exact thing he told them not to. The Lord puts it plainly, you have not obeyed my voice. Some in Israel were wondering where the Lord's faithfulness was. And you can see that in in Gideon's own words, no, he, he, he had asked the angel, the Lord, now where's the Lord whom we have heard about? You know, the God who brought us out of Egypt and we heard about how he worked all kinds of wonders. Where is he now? Where's his faithfulness? But Israel didn't understand faithfulness was not God's problem. It was Israel's problem. God was not there simply to defeat Israel's enemies so that they could live as they wish. He saved them for a relationship with him. And Israel rejected that relationship. And this was Israel's greatest problem. The greatest problem they faced was not the the Midianites coming into their land. Their greatest problem was not having to go into the mountains and live in these terrible shelters up in the mountains. No, 
the greatest problem they had was that they were enslaved to idols. And that's what idolatry is. It's slavery. So often we are, we are prone to forget that. But whenever we serve idols, whenever, which we are prone to do, we, are, we subject ourselves to slavery. That slavery brings bitterness in our lives. It's good to ask ourselves, what, what am I enslaved to in my life? Most likely, there's an idol behind it. It's good to check ourselves. Am I enslaved to anything? Is there idolatry behind it? It's a bitter slavery. God first sent Israel a prophet because they had to understand that this was their greatest problem. Even though they were no longer physical slaves in Egypt and lived in the promised land, they were still slaves and they did not realize it. It's similar to the time of Christ. Take the average Israelite in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to ask one of them, you know, what's Israel's greatest problem at this time? Well, that Israelite very well might respond, well, our greatest problem is the Romans. The Romans are in control of our land And that simply cannot be. The Pharisees, they most likely would have responded that way. The Lord Jesus came as a prophet of God. He made clear that this was not their greatest problem. Their greatest problem was sin. He said in John 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But Israel didn't understand that they needed to be set free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, they're oblivious to their slavery. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Right? The, these people Christ talked to, they had never been slaves in Egypt, and yet Christ tells them you are slaves because of your sin. That was their greatest problem, and this problem has not gone away in our time and for us. This is all of humanity's greatest problem. If you were to ask your average person on the street this week, you know, what's the world's greatest problem? Well, here's some responses you'd probably get. Well, our greatest problem is a pandemic. Or our greatest problem is bad world rulers. Or maybe uh, political riots in the United States. It's probably what you would get. But here we, we should ask, would we answer any differently? Do we understand that the greatest problem in this world is idolatry? It's sin. Do we understand that by nature we serve idols and we're prone to that same slavery and same idolatry? 
We need to reckon with that in our own hearts. We can't just point to the world and say, the problem lies out there. No, we need to point at our own hearts first and say, the problem in the world is right here. Well, there's a story that long, um, quite a number of years ago, a newspaper once asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And a theologian named G.K. Chesterton, he's said to have written into the newspaper and he said, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We would do well to reflect on that statement. Brings us to our next point. Now, the Lord sent a prophet to Israel to call out Israel for its sin. But you would expect a different ending to his message. You would expect the Lord to end by saying something like, Therefore, because of your sin, the Midianites will oppress you seven more years. Something like that. But that's not what happens. Instead, the scene immediately switches to Gideon. And and that's because the Lord is coming to his people with his saving grace. He's going to send them another judge and another deliverer. And Israel simply did not deserve this. But this is the character of our God again. That though they did not deserve anything but his judgment, he comes to them with his pure mercy and his grace. There was nothing in Israel that caused the Lord to act in this way, but he did because this is who he is. And this is the same grace he has shown us in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with us or any goodness within us. No, he came to us in his grace to save us. The same grace is on display in our text. Seen in Judges 6, it switches from the prophet to an area of Israel called Ophrah. The angel of the Lord came under an oak tree there. Now, it's good for us to, to pause at this point and to say a few things about the angel of the Lord here. It's a curious figure. In, and in this exchange, it's, it's hard to distinguish between the angel of the Lord on the one hand and the Lord himself. In verse 12, the angel appeared to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you. But then verse 14 says, the Lord turned to Gideon. So suddenly, out of nowhere. And then verse 16, the Lord then says, I will be with you. And in response to the speaker, the Lord, Gideon wants to offer the speaker a gift. But that gift is offered to the angel of the Lord. This is not the first time this sort of thing has happened with the angel of the Lord. You see the similar thing in Exodus 3 where the Lord calls Moses. The angel of the Lord is there. You see the similar things in Judges 13 with the announcement of Samson's birth. And this is why some, including uh, the reformer John Calvin, they have concluded that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. And yes, we need to be careful about jumping to conclusions 
the text does seem to lead us in this direction. In any case, the angel certainly has the authority of the Lord, and he says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Well, that's a stunning greeting, and it just might be difficult to believe. It's difficult to believe for two reasons. One, it doesn't seem like God is with Israel or with Gideon at all. Here he is hiding in a wine press, trying to thresh out the little grain he has. And two, Gideon looks nowhere near like a mighty man of valor. The rest of the Gideon story makes that clear. But the Lord does not call us to believe his word because of what we see with our eyes. Instead, he calls us to live by faith based on what he says. Let me say that again. The Lord does not call us to believe his word because of what we see with our eyes. Instead, he calls us to live by faith based on what he says. It's because his word is sure. And are you doing that in your own life? Living by faith in the word of God. God often calls people to be what they appear to be not. God changed Abram's name to Abraham, meaning father of many, even though he had no children. Didn't matter to the Lord. He would do what he said. The Lord Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, meaning rock, even though Peter showed himself to be nowhere near rock solid. It didn't matter to the Lord. He would do it anyway. God does this for us too. He calls us righteous, even though we are sinful in ourselves. The the Lord calls the things that are not as though they were. And He can call us righteous through Christ. He tells us to believe it by faith in what He says in His Word. The Lord calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. That's not because Gideon himself was so mighty. Because the Lord is with him. And that makes all the difference. Gideon, of course, he objects. His tribe is the weakest in Manasseh. He's the weakest in his father's house. But that doesn't matter for God. In fact, that makes him the perfect candidate to be used by by the Lord for the salvation of Israel. God's power will be made perfect in his weakness. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The Lord tells Gideon that he will be with him, and that's what Gideon really needs. Now notice what Gideon first says in response to the angel of the Lord. He says, Where all Yahweh's wonderful deeds that our fathers recount to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Basically, he's saying, you know, where's the God of the Exodus? Why isn't he acting for Israel? Good question, Gideon. But don't you see? The God of the Exodus is acting right in this moment. He's acting right now by calling you. Again, remember, Israel was in slavery at this time. 
They were in the promised land. They were no longer slaves of Pharaoh, but they were slaves of idols. It's good for us to ask, what, is, what was the goal of the exodus from Egypt? It wasn't simply a matter of human rights. No, God kept proclaiming to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me, the Lord. What is Israel doing right now? Are they serving the Lord? No, they're serving idols. And that means that even though Israel came out of Egypt, the goal of the Exodus has not been fulfilled. And so another and a greater Exodus needs to happen for Israel. An Exodus from slavery to sin. And this is the exodus we need also. It's not good enough to say I'm a covenant child and so everything is just fine no matter how I live. We all need to be set free from sin. As Christ says in John 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin and the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. We need to be set free. Israel in Judges 6 needs this kind of exodus. And then it's no wonder then that the call of Gideon is so similar to the call of Moses. You can see this in our text. Consider the similarities between them. God called Gideon in response to Israel's cries. The same is true of Moses in Exodus 3 as the Lord cried out to Israel, or the Israel cried out to the Lord there. The Midianites are involved in both instances. The Midianites are the nations oppressing Israel in Judges 6. Moses is living in Midian in Exodus 3. The call of Gideon begins with an appearance of the angel of the Lord. Same is true of Moses in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. The Lord tells Gideon, I will be with you. Those are the exact words the Lord said to Moses. Both Gideon and Moses, they cite their own weakness as reasons not to be called. God gives them both signs to reassure them, for Gideon it will be the fleece at the end of our chapter, chapter 6. For Moses, it was was his hand turned leprous and his staff turned to a snake. And in both instances, fire is a, a means of revealing the Lord. In Exodus 3, it was the burning bush. In our text, it's the fire that consumes the offering. Gideon may have realized the similarities between what he was seeing and what happened to Moses, and this may be why he quickly ran to prepare some kind of offering for the person speaking to him. He wanted reassurance that this was the Lord. Gideon prepared quite the gift, a young goat, an ephah of flour. There's no It's no small offering. When the angel of the Lord burnt up the gift and disappeared, Gideon then realized what was happening. He thought he was going to die. Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord reassured him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. Brings us to our last point. Now, Gideon constructed his altar in response to God's declaration of peace. 
However, this constru- the construction of this altar was at the same time a declaration of war. There were now altars for two gods in Israel, for the Lord and for Baal. The Lord does not tolerate other gods. So that night, the Lord instructed Gideon to demolish his father's altar to Baal. And it's interesting, the sequence of events. The angel of the Lord told Gideon he's going to save Israel from the hand of Midian. But where does this deliverance first begin? It begins right at home. And the first battle is not against Midianites, it's against Baal and Asherah. And this is the most important battle. Israel needs to reckon with its own idolatry. That's something we need to reckon with too. Remember the problem of the world. It's not first of all out there, it's in here. Ephesians 5 verse 5 states, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Right? Idolatry lives close to home. The one who is covetous is an idolater. We need to cut it out of our own lives. God called Gideon to cut down the Baal and Asherah at his father's house. He obeyed, but he did it at night. Now, what should we make of this? Well, perhaps it shows Gideon's weakness. However, it's also understandable in a way. And the important thing is that he did carry out the Lord's command. Gideon came with two bulls and ten servants. With the bulls' help, he pulled down the altar of Baal, and he cut down the asher beside it. And the wood of the asher, he made an altar to the Lord in its place, and then sacrificed a second bull to the Lord on the altar. It's not good enough to simply remove idols. The worship of the Lord needs to take its place. That's what Gideon does here. When the men of the town arose, they saw the devastation to their idols, and they found Gideon out, and they were angry. They came to his father Joash's house, and they demanded that Gideon come out and be put to death. Imagine that. That's how much they loved their idols. They were angry enough to murder Gideon because he touched them. That's also the consistent pattern of idolatry. When people's idols are touched or damaged, usually they become angry. That's a good check for us, too. If you find yourself to be angry about something, it's a good idea to check your heart. Am I angry because someone touched an idol in my heart? It's not necessarily the case, but it can be. So it's good to look at our own hearts. In any case, these men were angry enough to kill Gideon. Gideon's life was in danger, and this indeed is part of the cost of of discipleship. Following the Lord means the rejection of the world. This certainly was a case for our Lord Jesus Christ. Gideon tore down the idols during the night, but our Lord Jesus Christ, he did it right in broad daylight. Think of our reading from John 8 again. The Pharisees were the men of the town, so to speak, the ones in charge. Christ wasn't afraid of them. He didn't tiptoe around them, trying not to offend them. He just gave it to the Pharisees full blast. 
If you were children of Abraham, you'd be doing the works of Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. Man, I told you the truth that I heard from God. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Well, that's calling a spade a spade. The Pharisees were ready to kill the Lord Jesus like the men of the town wanted to kill Gideon. Eventually they did. That's also good news for us. It's because it's Jesus' death that frees us from slavery to sin. It's His death that has paid for all of our sins and all of our sins of idolatry. The true exodus happens through the blood of Christ. Christ purchased us for God so that we might finally, finally serve Him. It's through Christ's death that our old nature, inclined to all evil, is cut away. It's through Christ's sacrifice that that's why we can be confident that God will be with us as He was with Gideon. It's through that sacrifice that that's why we can, can confess nothing shall separate us from God's love. It's because Christ, the innocent one, was separated from God's love for our sakes so that we might never be separated from the love of God. The men of the city approached Joash looking for Gideon, but Joash responded, Shall you contend for Baal or will you save him? If he is a god, let him contend for himself. Clever response and ultimately true. Wouldn't the true God be able to defend himself? If Baal were really God, could Gideon fight against him and win? Of course not. It's a good test, right? If you fight against the true God, you're going to eventually lose. That's true of the Lord as well and our Lord Jesus Christ, who is true God. The Jewish leaders in the time of the apostles, they used this sort of thinking also. They were seeking to destroy the New Testament church. In Acts 5, Pharisees wanted to kill the apostles, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. In the present case, keep away from these men and let them alone, for this plan or this undertaking is from man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overcome them. You might even be found to be opposing God. He was right. If they were opposing the church and were opposing God, they would fail. It's because God is behind it. You know, Gideon opposed Baal, didn't hurt him one bit. That's because Baal's only an idol. We serve the living God. We serve the living Christ, God's Son, who's head of his church. Gamaliel was right. And if the New Testament church was of God, no one will be able to overcome it. And that's why no one has been able to overcome Christ's church, and no one will overcome Christ's church. For if anyone contends with Christ's church, he contends with Christ himself, and he will lose. That's what gives us confidence. That through Jesus Christ, we are on God's side. He is on ours. So we can be confident the church will always endure 
Amen.